Amen. Well, how's it going, True North? Awesome. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? All right. Two people had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Did you guys enjoy your turkey? Your, uh, what do we got, Jim? Uh, Mac and cheese, honey-baked ham. What do you sell there at Costco? Did you guys enjoy Thanksgiving food? All right. right. We got a few more people that enjoy their food. Well, I know you guys know me as a guy who enjoys food, but I don't know. There's something about Thanksgiving food that just... You know, it's really good just to have once a year. I think I'm just going to put it that way. Um, I mean, except for my mom's turkey this year. That was really good. But um, yeah, I don't really enjoy the Thanksgiving meal. That's not like the main part of Thanksgiving for me. You know, I can have the turkey and, this, and the ham and stuff. The thing that I enjoy the most about Thanksgiving is families. Being able to see the people that I love. You know, I haven't seen people for a while. And you can get together. You can spend time with each other. And it's a good time. Um, and does anybody else in your family, though, strange thing about family. Does anybody have that like uncle that's just like really interesting? Or maybe you have like a like a strangely old cousin that is just like always getting into trouble. Does anybody, can anybody relate that? Um, well, I think it's an interesting opportunity that we have, as sad as it is to see them make poor decisions for themselves, but it's a good opportunity for us to be able to learn from their mistakes. You know, I, I know growing up as a kid, I've had family members that have made poor decisions, and I could see what they chose to do. I could see, you know, where it looked enticing. I could see them having done that, and then I can see where they end up. And I think it's important for us that we can learn from other people's mistakes, right? A wise man once said, always try to learn from other people's mistakes, not your own. It's cheaper that way, right? And I'm not going to tell you who uh, said that, but uh, that quote reminds me, right, when it comes to the way that we read Scripture, It's important for us to learn from other people's mistakes, right? It's important for us to see the decisions that were made in Scripture, see what they chose to do, see where they decided to go, and see the result that came out of that decision. And I think for us, if we neglect to apply what we learn from Old Testament examples, I think it won't only cost us our money, but I think it can cost us our lives. So this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 13. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. Let's get our eyes on the Word. This text is going to help us identify ways that we can apply Scripture to our lives. So you guys turning with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 13. So in 1 Corinthians, this is actually a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. And you might not know, this is actually the second letter that he's written to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is a church that was based in a city that was a port city. So this city was a place where a lot of ships were coming through. There was a lot of merchandise being sold there. So there was a lot of economic growth in this city. Not only that, but there was a lot of sin that was growing in that city as well. Right? We can see as, as Paul went to Corinth and planted this church, that this church was surrounded by so much sin. Right? There, was, there was drinking parties, right? there was sexual morality, right? there, was, there was corruption in that city. And Paul is giving the church of Corinth the tools that they need to be able to fight their sins. So if you guys are there with me, let's turn our eyes to verse 6. You guys ready to read with me? Are you guys ready to read with me? Yeah. All right, all right, let's do it. Let's start in verse 6. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose it to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So in this verse, we can see Paul's heart for the Corinthian church, that they are killing their sin, that they are overcoming the sin that is surrounding them in their lives. And with these tools, right, in the point of the sermon, I want us to see the seriousness of sin. Uh, But before we understand how we are to kill our sin, I want us to just be reminded of what sin is. I know that we talk about it a lot, right? I know it's like, hey, don't, don't give in to your sin. Don't commit your sin. But what is sin, right? Sin is going against the perfect will of God. So we see God, right? In the beginning of time, it was just God, right? There was nothing else, right? With his words, he created everything. He made it all to be perfect, right? He created it to have harmony and peace. He created mankind to have perfect relationship with God. And what did sin do is sin messed it all up. Right? We can see from the beginning in Genesis 3, when Adam chose to sin, that it caused this ripple effect in all of humanity that we are to die, right? that there's pain in the world, that there's suffering in the world. God didn't design it that way, but sin is what caused that. And sin is also what is working through the world in hearts of, of everyone. Right? We, we see and we feel sin and its effects today even in our own lives. And sin is a very serious thing. Right? It's, like, it's like a disease and it's also like a poison. Right? Like we, we see the sin that we have and it rots us from the inside. Right? Even the purest of hearts. Think about the angels. Right? People and beings that were designed to serve God and his will. But sin corrupted their hearts. Right? No longer was God the center of attention and worship. But now everything else was, right? For angels worshiping them, themselves, wanting to, to get that worship for themselves. And humanity as well, right? To, to take our own lead in our own direction. We can see that in the fall of Adam. Sin is a very serious thing. And it is killing people around the world as we speak and in this room. So how do we kill our sin as it rots us, right? If we don't kill it first, it will kill us And for us this morning, if we are going to kill our sin, we need to, to write this down for point number one, take direction from the Bible's bad examples. We need to take direction from the Bible's bad examples. So when we read scripture, right, that's that's how we're going to receive instruction, right? That's, we got to get the words in our brain first for us to know what it says before we can apply it. Um, And so I'm going to go to that question that we hear a lot of, how is your Bible reading, right? I know that we hear that a lot. I know that you, uh, us leaders, are encouraging you guys a lot, right? Get in your Bibles, get in your Bibles, get in your Bibles, right? And that's probably a question that's going to turn you off right now, but don't be turned off. Stay focused with me. Um, But how is your Bible reading right now, right? Uh, An answer that we get a lot as leaders is, well, could be better, right? But better how? How can it be better? What, What are you doing wrong, right? And I want us to try to diagnose what's going wrong in our Bible reading. Because if you're reading the Bible, right, you're getting your eyes on the words, and you're, you know, you're, you're looking at it, you're soaking it in, but it does nothing to your life, then something is wrong. And I don't think that what's wrong is the word. I don't think what's wrong is scripture. I think what's wrong is our approach. 
I think what's wrong is the way that we think about our Bible reading that is causing there to be no fruit. So let's go ahead and diagnose that a little bit right now. So for your Bible reading, do you treat it like a high school textbook, right? Like one of your classes, do you just kind of look at it, try to like glean information from it? Let me just spend some time looking over it, right? And then it's just kind of like an information like receiving and dumping, you know what I'm saying? Is that how we're thinking about it? Or maybe we're taking advantage of like the audio tool of scripture reading, right? That's super helpful. I love to use that. But, you know, we're busy. We got stuff on our minds, stuff to do. And so we press play on the audio book, right, for the Bible. And then we just go and do other things while, while we listen to it, right? But we're not really putting our minds to the text, right? And then in that situation, we're just kind of gleaning one or two nuggets, right, from, from the reading. Or maybe you're passionate about Bible reading. Maybe you love it and you want to spend time in it. But the time that you spend in it is really early in the morning, really late at night, right? And our brains are tired. We can't soak it in. We can't understand what we're reading very well because we're tired, right? So how should we fix this? How are we to read the Bible? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So this week, um, it was a very exciting time. It was the first time we ever took Judah to the zoo. So that was super fun. He was able to run around. He doesn't really understand at this time in, in his life what we're looking at, right? We're like in this section of the zoo where we have like all these like crazy little critters and amazing little creatures. And he's like what, running to the exit sign, like amazed at it. But um, so imagine you're with me at the zoo and I brought a little souvenir, right? I got a map from the zoo. And imagine I gave you this map and I said, hey, why don't you take this map home? I want you to study it. I want you to look at it. I want you to try to get to know every name of the different rows, the different paths. I want you to kind of learn the different directions that it takes you, right? And, and I'm assigning this to you as once a day, right? Maybe 15, 30 minutes a day, spend it looking at this map, right? How is that going to be for us in our week, right? It's probably going to be pretty boring. We're probably going to hate this map. We're going to hate that assignment, right? Because it, it doesn't have anything to do with us. But now, picture me with my family. I made it to the zoo, right? We forgot to pack snacks, right? I want to be a loving husband to my wife, and she's hungry. Man, I need to get her some snacks. All right, where's the snack shack? Let me look at the snack shack, right? Judah's kind of itching to run around, like, oh, let me go to the explorer area. Where's that, you know? Um, and then, like, I've been drinking a lot of water that morning. I got to use the bathroom. Where's the bathroom? So instantly, you'll realize this map becomes way more interesting. And why is that? It's because it's showing me where to go, I, I see the need for directions. I see the need that I have to know where to go, and this map is showing me the way. So instantly you can see, if you don't have that intentionality of, I need to be directed by this thing, right, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to hinder you from studying it. And I think it goes similarly with the Word of God. If we don't see our need to be directed by it, we will have a hard time studying it. We'll have a hard time letting it lead our lives. So as we consider that, um, I want us to look back at verse 11. We're going to get started kind of in the middle of this text here. I think this does really well to set the tone of uh, the rest of this sermon. So let's look at verse 11 and let's see the way that we should adjust our, our uh, mentality when it comes to reading the word. Let's read from verse 11. It says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we see, what is he talking about, right? We just read before that in verses 6 to 10, the nation of Israel, right? They fell into their sin, right? And these things happened as an example is what it says in the next line, but they were written down for our instructions. So what's the purpose of the Old Testament, right? Oftentimes when we look at it 
it feels like we're reading a textbook. It feels like we're just looking at history uh, of people. But the whole purpose of it, believe it or not, is for you. The whole purpose of the Old Testament is for your life to be instructed by it. And I think that's a super important thing that we should be bringing in to our reading of the word. Right? And if you don't believe me that that's, that's the truth, look at Romans 15.4. It says, for, whoever, uh, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Right? We can look at these old examples. We can look at what they've done, and we can, take, um, we, we, we can learn from it. We can learn what not to do. So when it comes to your Bible reading, how do you approach it? Right? Are you just trying to reap information from it? Or are you seeking to be directed by it? That's going to change everything about the way that we read the Bible, right? Think about all the influences and all the voices we have today, right? You could probably imagine a couple of those, right? How, much of, how many of us are spending hours in the week on social media, right? How many of us, uh, we have feelings that are telling us what to do. But if we want to live as Christians, we want to serve God well, we're going to not let our feelings and not let the world tell us what to do, how to act, what to say, what to wear, right? We need to look to Scripture if, we need, if we're going to want to be able to do that well before God, right? And so some examples, right? Looking from the Old Testament, how do we apply these examples, right? So say you're going through a hard time, right? Um, I don't know if you know for Abby and I, right, we had some infertility. We lost two babies in a miscarriage, right? And so it's, it's heartbreaking, Right? We, we had this situation where we had the, these, these babies, we were excited, and we lost them. But how do we deal with that? Right? In Job 121, Job, you know his situation. He had all these riches. Right? He had all these children, uh, all this livestock, but then he's tested. Right? Satan tests him, and he takes away his children, takes away his livestock, takes away everything he has. And what does Job do? When all that is taken away from him, he falls to the ground. He shaves his head, and he worships. Right? Think about the words that he says. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? And so for us, right, for, for our hardship in our situation, what are we to do in this heartache? What are we to do in this tragedy? We can worship the Lord even though we are facing tragedy. You know, take Joseph, for example, in the Old Testament. You see him. You know his story. He's all these brothers. He's the favorite of them all. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. That's the ultimate, like, prank that you can do to your brother. I'll tell you that much. But he was sold into slavery in Egypt, and it didn't end there, right? He was a righteous man. He had skill. He was put over uh, in charge of things. He was wrongly, wrongly accused, put into prison. Think about that. That is a hard situation. But what does he do? He remains faithful, and he trusts God. And God uses him to save lives. He uses him to save the nation of Israel's lives and all the people in the region of Egypt. So what do we do when we're in a situation that seems impossible, right? Nothing is going well. You trust God. You hope in him. You remain faithful. And those are lessons that we can learn from the Old Testament. And those being good examples, but now we're going to continue to think and look at the bad examples that, that, that uh, Israel has done. And we need to let it crush. Or we need to use scripture to crush our sin. So... Come back with me in your minds to the example of us at the zoo. So we make it through. We get to Snack Shack. We hit the bathroom, right? Judah's having fun in the play area. But then we're going exhibit to exhibit, right? And so we have the tigers over here. We've got the jaguars over here. And say the next exhibit that we're approaching is a particular kind of predator. This is a predator that does really well to lure in its prey. It presents something to its prey 
that looks really enticing and really good. It promises it something, maybe food, maybe water, maybe comfort. And then as that prey is lured in, the predator attacks and kills its prey and eats it, right? And so imagine this with us. We're, we're looking at this creature within the glass, and we're, we're in awe of it. What an amazing creature. This is insane. This thing kills to survive, and it does, th- does so through tempting its prey. Now I want you to think about us as we read Scripture, right? We might kind of take Old Testament and read in the Old Testament just like that zoo exhibit, right? Exhibit A, how Israel totally gives in to idolatry, right? Like the nations around them. Or exhibit B, you know, the, the Israelites are going through, uh, going through the wilderness and they're tempted by the daughters of Moab and they fall into sexual morality. Or exhibit C, when they are tempted to complain and grumble and they do so and then they're judged, right? So we can look at these examples, but I think where this uh, illustration falls short is that we are in danger of the same things. So often we can look at Israel, give them a bad rap for their sin, and man, they totally messed up. But so often we fail to realize that we are in danger of the same things. We need to look at verse 12, and it points that out for us. It says in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm going to read that again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is so important for us to realize that we can fall into the same sins. It's like we're, we're walking around in this zoo and there's the predators around us, right? We're, we're walking through and all of these different predators are tempting us in every which way. And if we go after it, we see examples of people going in and dying and, and, being, and being consumed by these predators. And we too are surrounded by that today and right now. We need to see the urgency of that. We need to realize that right now is the time for us to study the word so that we can avoid those dangers. So where did Israel fall short? Where did they fall? Let's look at verse 7, and we'll read it to verse 10, and we'll see, we'll see what they did wrong. You guys with me? Verse 7? All right, let's read it from verse 7. It says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. So what is idolaters? Being, uh, worshiping an idol, something that's not God. And, and they, uh, they were idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So I think there's a theme in the midst of those sins and the failings of the nation of Israel that I think is really important for us to look at. And I think we can see what that is in verse 6. Read that with me. It says, now these, th- uh, now these things took place, right? The failings of Israel, them suffering for their sin. Those things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And I want us to look at a picture of, having, of Israel having desired their sin. Let's turn together to Romans, or sorry, to Numbers 11. Let's turn together to Numbers 11. We're going to look at verse 4. We're going to see the way, the thing that brought Israel down and what caused them to fall into sin. You guys turning there with me? Numbers 11. We're going to begin in verse 4. It says, now the rabble, so rabble is kind of like a mob, right? So this is the nation of Israel, right? They're, They're going through the wilderness and a rabble was coming up. A mob was starting to form within the nation of Israel. Now the rabble that was among them, uh, that was among them had a strong craving. 
and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. So in that passage, you can see where Israel is going through the wilderness. They're, 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 they're traveling through. God is providing for them. He's giving them water. He's giving them manna from heaven. Literally, bread falling from the sky. So if you're hungry, God was providing for these people, and it tasted like honey, and they were complaining. And they had a craving, and they let that craving direct them. And let's continue and look down in verse 33. It's a little ways over toward the end of this chapter. So we see that God provided their craving. He was angry about it, but he provided it for it. Uh, He provided it for them. Let's look at verse 33. It says, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled. It was, it was kindled against them, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Heteva, because they, there they buried the people who had the craving. So think about that. They had a craving. They desired this thing. They complained to the Lord, and then the Lord killed those people with the craving. So where did they go wrong? I think it's really important for us to look at that and learn from that ourselves. They didn't deny their desires. You can see that with me. They, they let the desires lead them. And does everybody have desires for evil? Does everybody have these temptations? Yeah, everybody does, right? Everybody can feel the temptations uh, for evil, and we all have them, but what do we do with them? So it's kind of, sin is kind of like uh, bringing in an animal. I'm not, I'm not going to use a cat as an example. I know we always give a bad rap to cats. But imagine with me, you're, you're, you're wanting a pet. You want this pet to make you happy. And, so, and you love reptiles. So you say, you know what? Let's bring in a 20-foot python into our lives. This thing's going to make us so happy. And you say you have little children at your home, and you're just in love with this python. And all of a sudden, little Johnny's gone. And you're like... What just happened? This thing that was supposed to bring so much joy in my life is killing my family? So what's going to happen if you have this desire for this python and it's disappointing you, right? You're seeing that it's causing all this pain and this hurt. There needs to be a balance and a shift there that while you still have the desire for that python, you grow and you develop a hate for it. A hate that, de- that detests that thing, that wants to get rid of it, that wants to take it out of your life. And if we are to overcome our sin desires, we need to cultivate a hate for it. And how much hate should we have against it? I think the only appropriate level of hate that we should have for it is as much as God hates it. And that's point number two. Write that down. Point number two, hate your sin as much as God does. Hate your sin as much as God does. We can see so often so many people are led astray. The sin is so enticing The sin looks so good. It's going to bring me pleasure and joy. It's going to bring me this happiness that I want. It's going to fulfill me. I know that there's a lot of that rush of desire that comes with sin. And there is pleasure, right? But it's for a moment. And then what comes next? And I think what comes next from that is something that we should take note of to develop a hate for it. So how should we hate sin? We should hate it for the pain that it brings. We should hate sin for the pain that it brings. We can see that played out in physical pain for so many people. Think about all the slave traders today. Think about the people that covet and desire money so they kill in order to obtain what they want. James 4, 2, 
It says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And this is among Christians that desire for something that isn't yours and you're willing to sin and even hurt somebody else for that. We should hate the pain that comes with sin. Not only physical pain, but emotional pain. How many people in the room have been affected by divorce? Heartbreak that comes from a broken family. Right? That, that, that comes out of selfishness. That comes out of pride. That comes out of sexual immorality. And it is hard. And it hurts. And we should hate the pain that comes from that. Also from foolishness, the deciding to go after things that, that is silly and going to cause pain. Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. It brings sorrow to your mother's heart. That is a pain that we should hate. We should hate the emptiness that sin brings. So often we feel like sin is what satisfies us. So often we feel like sin is what we need. But instead, it's like salt water where you, 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 you're, you thirst, so you drink the salt water, but it leaves you parched. So you desire more to quench more of your thirst, but it leaves you more and more thirsty. And Proverbs 13.25 says, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. How often do we fall into our sin and desire more and more of our sin, only to be left feeling empty, only to be left realizing that we have nothing. We should hate the slavery that comes from sin. So often when we fall into sin, we let it control us. We don't have, we no longer have this control over our lives, and, and who falls into this category? Everybody does. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Every single person is enslaved by nature to their sin because of Adam. And that, for that we should hate it. What else should we hate about sin? We should hate the shame that comes with sin. Imagine with me every single sin that you have ever committed. Think about all the things that you've done that you've chosen to go after, all the ways that you've fallen short. Imagine now that everyone could see those sins. Imagine the kind of shame that that would bring. Imagine how that would make you feel. And to make it worse, Luke 8 verse 17 says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. These things will be exposed, for, uh, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. All of our sins are going to be on display one day. Everything that we have on our record is going to be put on display. And that makes us feel alone. That makes us feel ashamed. We want to hide in a dark corner with our sin. And that is our shame. We should hate the shame that comes with sin. We should also hate death. The sin that we have that was brought into the world caused death for all mankind. Genesis 3.19, right? We, we talked about that in the beginning. It says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You've got to work hard for this now. You're going to sweat. It's going to be hard. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to the dust you shall return. Death. Think about that. 
our physical bodies are rotting. Our physical bodies are slowly deteriorating until we die, until it no longer functions, and until we're buried in the ground. And that is because of sin. Blame your death on sin. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. And when we choose sin, it's misplacing God in our lives. When we choose sin, it's worshiping something else. And if we choose something else, God will give us that desire. In the end, God will allow us to choose something that's not God. And when we, go, when we die, if we go to hell, that's a place where God's goodness is removed, where he no longer is. Instead, there's torment, suffering. That is the second death. James 1, 14 to 15 paints a good picture for us to keep in mind about this death. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We should hate this. Now, why does God hate sin? And I think this is more important for us to be able to consider as we seek to hate sin. Why does God hate it? Again, we mentioned God is creator. God created everything to be perfect. He made it where everything is in perfect harmony, perfect relationships. But sin ruined that. And he was ready to scrap it. And he did with Noah. He caused a flood. He wiped out every single person in the world except for Noah and his family. He started over. Again, in, in, in the Exodus, as we see with Moses, he's on Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel that God has chosen and set apart for himself, they fell into idolatry. And God says, Moses, remove yourself from this people. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to destroy this nation, this idolatrous and, 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 and perverse nation, and I'll make a nation out of you. And he almost did it. But Moses pleaded with God. So God is ready to scrap the good things that he has, something perfect that he set up, ruined by sin, and he's ready to give up, give up on it. It breaks his heart. God continues, as we see, not only did he show love and grace to the nation of Israel, he, he showed, or he continues to show it to the nation of Israel, and he shows that love to us. We're reading in our daily Bible reading, which we hope you've, you're reading in our daily Bible reading. We just read in Ezekiel 16, right? It's the, 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 the pastor that says, the Lord's faithless bride. And he talks about how he brought this woman out of the, out of the mud, covered in blood, disgusting. Nobody would want this woman, and he cleaned her up. He gave her all these ornaments. He, he, he set her up. He fed her, and she was beautiful. But then she chose to use her life and all that she had in adultery. She gave it to other men and broke God's heart. And we see that time and time again where God's heart is broken. But God didn't end there in suffering for sin. God took the greatest pains against our sin. He knew that we couldn't fulfill the law. He knew that we couldn't earn our salvation. So he sent somebody who could. He didn't want us to die for our sins. He didn't want us to suffer. So he placed those sins on his son, on his only begotten son. He didn't want us, he didn't want to forget or forsake us. So he forsook his son on the cross. He knew that we couldn't get into heaven or defeat death. So he rose his son from the dead and with him we can be sons and daughters of God. That is a truth that should amaze us about God's love. That he hated sin so much that he would kill his only son to save us. He hates sin. And so he put his wrath 
and this sin on his son. All that shame that we talked about, all the things that we hate about sin, placed it on his son. Now, if you're a person that has been living in a pattern of sin, you remain enslaved to it, you continue to fall into it time and time again, I want us to realize what you're doing by doing that. And I think you're in a very serious situation. Not only did you ruin the perfect plan that God has set in motion, not only did God punish Christ for the offenses that we did, but now he's looking for somebody who crucified his son. Let's turn to Hebrews 10, 26. Let this be something that puts fear into our hearts. Let's read it together. You guys there? Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Let's get our eyes on that. Starting in verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot? the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Now verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God went through the worst to be able to set us free from this sin. That's how much he hates it, knowing that it will condemn and ruin our lives. And if we continue in this sin, we're trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. How much worse is that punishment going to be for us now? So if this is you and you are in your sin and you're enslaved to it, what do we do? Repent. Repent of your sin. Repent. Turn away from it. That word is to Turn away. So to turn away, you need to be turning away from something and towards something else. In this situation, if we're going to cling to Christ, if we're going to take hold of Christ, got to let go of our sin. Choose to let go of your sin. Choose to deny what the world has set up to be so attractive to us and cling to Christ. First John 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what do we do after we have repented of our sin? We need to continue to put our faith in God. We need to put our faith in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And 1 John 2, verse 2, says he is the propitiation for our sins. That is the atonement for us. He's made a way for us through our sins. And not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So our lives, no longer defined by sin, but now defined by keeping God's laws and his commandments, not for salvation, but because Christ has brought the salvation to us. So now we have this desire of sin. We hate this sin, but now there's a different side of this coin that I think is vitally important for us. It is to desire Christ. Desire Christ. If you've been washed by the blood of Christ for all the times that you sinned and all the times that you fell short, God no longer sees your sin and your failings. God sees Christ. For all the times that you fell into anger and hate, 
God sees love and compassion of Christ. For all the times that you've coveted and desired something and sinned to obtain it, God sees Christ's perfect contentment. For all the times that we've fallen into lust, God has seen Christ's perfect self-control. For all the times that we've fallen in, into anxiety and to not trusting in our sovereign God, God sees Christ's perfect obedience and trust in his Father. That should amaze us. We're no longer defined by the sins that we've done. We're no longer defined by the shame that we've absorbed for ourselves. But he sees Christ. And if he sees Christ, shouldn't we live to be like Christ? And if we are, then we're going to read his word. We're going to apply his words to our lives. Right? Live for Christ if you've been set free. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is all of our desires. All of the things that we've ever desired in our lives, that's crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If Christ gave us everything and we're saved by that, let us give everything back to him. We should desire to know Christ more and more. Not only from our sins should we deny those and count those as loss, but even our good things. Paul, in in Philippians 3, verse 8, says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right? He's talking about the record that he has, the good things he's done, the ways that he's been faithful for God. Even those things, he counts those as loss because knowing Christ is so much better. For this I have suffered the sake, or I, for, the, for, the, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And, and also in Psalm 63, verse 3, it says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So now, if you've been set free by Christ, if you're walking in this newness of life, if you're a new creation and you're living for him, guess what? We still have temptation. We still have the desire to do what is wrong. But what do we do with this temptation now? Paul has an answer for us. The Lord has an answer for us in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. So get back to that passage. Let's read and put our eyes on this text. Let's read verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when we have this temptation, we should know and trust that God is faithful. And what is he faithful to? In John 8, verse 36, it says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How many of us have struggled against sin, seeking to kill our sin, and it continues to have victory over us? But... If Christ has set us free, we have freedom in that. And that's why for point number three, we should believe that God will help us beat temptation. Believe God will help you beat temptation. So why does God even allow us to continue to have temptation? I think there's a beautiful outlook on this that we have in James 1, verses 2 to 4. Write that down. It's super, super helpful for us to remember why we have temptation. Right? Count it all joy, my brothers. You should be happy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When you're tested, when you're in those trials that you're tempted to do what's wrong and you choose what is right, that produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this verse, as we read in verse 13, God is faithful, 
right? With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. What is the way of escape? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. So we need first to read God's word. In John 8, verse 31 and 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. Do you get that? If you actually saturate your mind with his word, if you're getting into it every day, you're actually a Christian. That's interesting. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. As we read the word, as it fills our minds, it will free us from our sin. We need to guard our lives against God's word. So when we're looking at our lives, right, as we read in, uh, in verse 12, or in verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right, that's trusting in our own wisdom, our own abilities to conquer sin. But hey, be careful, trust that God can get you through by guarding your life with God's word. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, how can a young man, uh, a man that's in a position of a lot of temptation and usually low self-control, how does he keep his way pure? Verse 9 says, by guarding it according to your word. We should obey and follow Christ when, when it doesn't even make sense. In, in Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet. If we're living in a world that's full of light, we don't need a lamp to our feet, but if we're living in a world that is full of darkness, where do you know where to go when it's, when it's fully dark? You know that if the word is a light to your feet, you know where to go, and you can run. You can be obedient to what God has called you to do if you look through the word of God and let it guide you, right? We need to memorize God's word. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's something that we should have ready to fight sin at all times. It's something that we should be ready to recall when temptation hits. What are those verses that can help us overcome our sin? Memorize those. Take those to heart and use those to fight against temptation. And finally, we need to worship Christ with our lives. No longer are we slaves to sin. No longer does sin have a grip on our lives to control our thoughts and control what we do, where it's going to lead us to death. But now if we're saved by grace, we can have slavery to righteousness, as interesting as that is. We're slaves to God's will. Romans 6, 17 to 18 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Super helpful for us to remember as we seek to be Christians and apply God's word. And we can't do it alone, right? We need to be able to have accountability. Find those people around you that want to be faithful, that want to crush their sin, and work together. There's students around you, your friends, your peers that are trying to do this. Grow in accountability with them. The leaders, your leaders, Right? We want to we help you guys. We want to serve you guys. So come to us, and we'll keep you accountable. If you want to really make it hurt to crush your sin, go to your pastor. He'll keep you accountable. And we love to do that for your sake so that you can overcome your sin. So how many of us in here are driving now? I, I feel like uh, more and more people every day are being able to drive. Who can drive in here? All right, we've got a couple of people. So one thing for you guys to watch out when you're on the roads, and, and trust me, I... I'm speaking of experience here, is toll roads. Every time you hit a toll road, if you don't have an account, boom, they'll charge you. Boom, they'll get you. I had a time where I was driving on my way to Riverside, which is an, a light year away, and I, and I made a wrong turn on a toll road, went through this toll 
and got charged and then had to do a U-turn and drove back through the toll and got more, got more charged to me. And then I totally forgot to pay the toll and it went up to like $300 and I had to pay this toll. Yeah. I had a friend from school that uh, had a toll road fine and he said it got up to $900. If you drive through this thing and you don't pay it, it just keeps getting worse and worse, right? The later it gets, the more they charge you. He got up to $900. When it comes to our sin, right, it's enticing. The Torah looks good when we don't have a, a Torah account, but it continues to grow. Our debt continues to grow, and you can't pay it. We can't pay it. God paid it for us. So why should we get back into that sin? Why should we continue to go after those sins that first brought that debt upon us? We need to crush those sins. And how do we crush that? We crush it with the word of God. We crush it hoping and trusting in his word. And it's my prayer for you guys that we can have the ability to crush this sin. The sin is going to kill us, guys, if we don't kill it first. And God gave us a way through his word. Let's believe that. Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, thank you. Thank you that you have made a way for us to be set free. God, when we're born into our sin, we are enslaved. We are condemned. But you, through Christ, have freed us from this sin. And now our tool to be able to overcome our sin is your word. Help us to see the importance of that and cling to it. But let every moment of our lives be to the glory of King Jesus, who has made a way for salvation for us. Let us use every breath that we have, everything that we can to serve you, Lord. Give us the strength to do that and help us as we continue to worship you with our lives. We pray this all in the name of the Son who set us free.